Let me tell you a story, podcast number 100. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago, age never mind it is a truth how long You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to the 100th episode of Let Me Tell You a Story. We are amazed by the wide variety of stories, essays, and poems we've been able to feature on our podcast and grateful to the many authors who've contributed. In this, our 100th podcast, we'll finish reading Michelle Netton's short story titled Different Mirrors, and I'll read from Winds of Wyoming. Steve will treat us to a David Roper essay, plus read two Eugene Shea poems. We're going to pick up where we left off last time in Michelle Netton's Different Mirrors. But you can't stay here forever. He looked surprised that he'd spoken the words. I'm sorry. I'm not sure why I said that. Obviously, it's not my choice to make. Marla raised her eyebrows, surprised as well. It's true. It is my choice to make. I'm not saying I plan to remain here permanently, but the thought of leaving is something I can't embrace right now. And having the freedom to decide is the wonderful part. Eventually, I'll have to return to take care of things but I don't see myself ever living there again. I may not always do what I'm doing now. There's more to life than washing dishes. But since coming here, I've discovered that what I do isn't nearly as important as what I am. What I found here is life, my life, its essence. I'm never going to give that up. She looked pointedly at Eric. Is it too much to ask that I be the one to decide my own timetables? No. Eric avoided her gaze. For most people, it isn't. But for someone in your position, it's a little harder to get away with. I've never met anyone like you. And after talking with you tonight, I wish for your sake I didn't have to do what I have to do. As long as Robert knows where I am, he'll never stop trying to get me back there. If he knew how I was living here, he'd never believe it. Or accept it. In a million years. Marta leaned back against the pillow and propped her knees up. You could lie, say you didn't find me. Unless, of course, you're not the lying type. Eric smiled wryly and took the last sip of his tequila. Everyone is the lying type under the right circumstances. But in my case, it wouldn't be great for business. It wouldn't hold up. Robert would hire someone else and they'd find you the same way I did. Though, of course, it would take someone else longer. His smile faded. You can never really be free of this, you know. Like you said, Robert's not going to give up. There has to be some way I can convince you. It's not that I want to be deceptive. I want to be lost again. I need some more time. Marla got to her feet. Please consider it. She felt exhausted. Eric got the message. He stood up and set his empty glass on the small table. I will, but I can't promise how things will go. Maybe if I talk to Robert, try to explain. Marla was shaking her head. No, that won't work. That is one thing I'm sure of. He will insist on trying to control me. 
the way he controlled Richard. But, as you said, you have to do what you have to do. I understand you have an obligation to the one who hired you. She rose slowly. She walked over to the door and opened it. Eric followed her. The night air was still warm. Thank you for talking with me. It was nice to have someone to listen. Her words were pleasant, though her voice was strained. Eric stood in the doorway. It was my pleasure to listen. I've enjoyed the company more than any I've had in a long time. And here, he reached into his pocket, I want you to have this. He handed her the last forlorn cigarette. I don't think you're going to smoke it, and I know I'm not going to need it anymore. I have you to thank for that. I'm still hoping I'll be able to do something you can thank me for. Marla took the cigarette, holding it gingerly between her fingers, then set it down on the table beside his empty glass. Thanks. If you decide you want it back, well, you know where to find me. He laughed lightly at her sarcasm. Good night, then, was all he said before turning away. Marla closed the door softly behind him. She was left alone with the silence in the room. She took the empty glasses into the kitchen. These rooms had been filled with her internal voice and movements for as long as she'd been here, and had felt comfortable. Yet, now there'd been a different voice and movements. The stillness had been disturbed. It had been invaded. And oddly, not by the man who'd been here, but by the man who'd sent him from thousands of miles away. As soon as Robert found out where she was, the simple beauty of her secret little cottage would be undone. Resentment welled up inside her. She could feel it coursing through her body as she'd felt the tequila earlier. This was much stronger. She went from window to window, fleeing them all open. Damn him, she blurted. Crossing back to the kitchen, she noticed the cigarette Eric had left behind. She grabbed it, ready to toss it into the garbage. But as she held it, mixed with the scent of tobacco, she smelled Eric's faint aftershave. She hadn't noticed it at all before, but smelling the scent now, she realized her anger was not directed at him. It truly wasn't his presence that was invading. She set the cigarette carefully in a small clay dish on the window ledge. Despite what Eric's reasons for being in Cancun meant to her, she had liked him. He seemed sincere and honest, and for a virtual stranger, more interested in her thoughts and feelings than anyone had been for as long as she could remember. Wasn't it authenticity, after all, that she was trying so hard to find? And yet it was his honesty that was compelling him to tell Robert where she was. If only his reason for being in Cancun had been altogether different. But it wasn't different, and that changed everything. How much time did she have left here before Robert sent more army ants after his first soldier? She felt so much stronger in her sense of self in her three months of living here that she was sure just a while longer would be enough time for her to gather the determination to go back and close the chapters of her other life. Because that was what she was going to do. It would soon be time to close the book entirely on that past, and she had to be in Seattle to do that. But she needed more time. All of these thoughts went with her. She crawled into bed and waited for sleep to come. It was a long time before the melodic sound of the waves helped her to drift off. But even then, her dreams were plagued with panic as she tried to run from the metal cage bars that were closing in on her. By the time she fell asleep, the sun was about to begin its climb into the sky. 
by midday, enough warmth had seeped in through the open windows to wake her. She always had her windows closed in the morning, so when she opened her eyes and saw them open, letting heat in, the memories of last night rushed back into her mind, as if she could have forgotten. She got up and closed the windows, realizing it was futile now. The heat would be trapped until the coolness of the night came again. Marla made some tea and brought it into the living room. She sat at the small table and looked around. Physically, there wasn't much to look at, and yet there was so much she could hardly take it all in. She had never had so much that was hers to lose. She didn't want to leave, but did she have a choice? Maybe even by now Robert knew where she was. Maybe he couldn't force her to do anything, she thought, but he would try, and he could harass her interminably. But if leaving was the answer, it sparked another question. Where would she go? And for that, she had no answer. Except now, it wouldn't be the first time she struck out for God knows where. She could do it again if she had to, and as often as necessary. No matter how many times she went over her situation, it always came back to one answer. She had to leave. Louis's bar was slow this time of day. Benito hopped along the bar, keeping it from feeling empty. Louis smiled as he saw her approaching. Buenos tardes, senora. I am always very pleased to see you, but you do not work tonight, no? Hello, Louis. You are right, but I need to talk to you. She sat down on a bar stool. Louis brought her some iced tea without being asked and set the tall glass on the lightly polished wood of the bar. Sounds serioso, he said softly. It is. It is about that man, yes? Yes. Marla told him she had to leave. Senora, I know this is not what you want. I cannot help. It wouldn't help to explain all the circumstances of why she had to go. I'm sorry, Louis. I don't think there's any other answer for me. But there is something you can do to help. Anything I can do, Senora. His eyes were sympathetic. She took some money from her wallet. I went to buy the falcon. I can pay you whatever you need to buy the kind of birds you told me about. Yes, you mean the ones that are bred and raised in captivity. I admit I could better use two of one kind than the one I have. But why, Senora? That is something that is also difficult to explain, but it's something I must do. Louis looked confused, but he didn't press her. All right, Senora. This is a simple problema to solve. I wish I could help you to stay. Marla was touched at his genuine concern. He counted out a portion of the money she'd given him and gave her back the rest. This is a plenty good price. You may take the bird whenever you wish. Here is the key. It is okay to leave it in the cage. She smiled at him as she got up to go. I hope to see you again soon, Senora. I hope you will be back. I will be back, Louis. I promise you that. She hoped it was true. She went out through the patio toward the cages. A few curious restaurant customers were milling about the cages, feeding precious bits of food to the animals. Marla walked past them to the falcon's cage. The bird was at the very back of the cage, staring straight ahead as usual. She waited until the onlookers had returned to the patio. Then she took Louis's key and opened the lock on the cage. You don't belong here, she said to the falcon. There are predators where you are going, 
and many who would like to keep you closed in, but I know it is a price you are willing to pay. Anything's better than this. She swung the door open and backed away from the opening. At first, the bird continued staring ahead, as though it didn't notice the open door. But then it fluttered closer to the opening, unable to stay away from the free air. Good luck, my friend, Marla said softly. May we both farewell. With a sound like rushing wind, the bird took to the air. Before it flew away, Marla thought its eyes looked directly at her for a brief moment, but she wasn't sure if she had imagined it. She watched it fly gracefully up and away until it was out of sight. For many minutes after the bird was gone, Marla stared at the empty cage. Its emptiness felt good to her. She set the key on one of the wooden perches and left the barred door open on her way out. She walked slowly back to her cottage, thinking of how she would dispose of the handful of things she'd acquired. How different this departure is from the last one, she thought. Before, she had so much, so many things, and couldn't wait to leave them all behind. Now, she had so little, but parting with these things felt like leaving behind her only friends. Cancun itself had become a friend to her, from Louis and the people she worked with to the expansive ocean that she loved. She'd found herself here, and hoped desperately that what she'd found would travel with her instead of being left behind. She let herself inside the cottage. It was late in the afternoon now. She would pack in the morning. For now, she wanted to sit and enjoy this room as it was. She gave a start when she heard a knock at the door. For a moment, she stayed where she was in the middle of the room, not moving. In the back of her mind, it occurred to her that no one had ever knocked on her door before, and it was almost as if she'd forgotten what to do. He must be back, sooner than she'd expected. Suddenly, she wished she'd packed and left this morning. The knock came again, and this time she moved to answer it. She swung open the door to find Eric standing there with an anxious look on his face. You're here, he said, letting out a sigh. You had me worried there for a minute. Thought you might have to start the search all over? Marla backed into the room, leaving the door open. The time will soon come for that, she thought to herself. Eric stepped in after her. I'm certainly glad I don't have to do that. Yes, I'm sure. You've spoken to Robert, no doubt. Yes, I reached him not long ago. Even though she expected it, the feeling of dismay splashed over her like a tidal wave. She crossed to the small kitchen and turned to face him. Here's the part where you tell me how Robert is demanding my return, because you told him you found me, and now your job is to be Robert's extension cord for dragging me back to Seattle. Eric didn't answer right away, as if he were trying to find the right words. That's how it is, right? Yes, that was the basic gist of Robert's attitude. But there's more. He followed her into the kitchen. Marla watched his face and saw the start of a slight smile appear, but she didn't see anything humorous in the situation. She crossed her arms over her chest, waiting for the rest. You told him you found me, that I was here in Cancun. Yes, I told him where I had found you, how you were living, and you were right. About what? She waited, rubbing the back of her neck, trying to ease out the tension. Eric leaned against the wall. Marla watched his eyes scan her place, looking at it now in the daylight. He took a breath. 
Last night you said Robert would never believe you were living here in a cottage in Mexico, working nights washing dishes for a living. I told him the truth, but exactly like you said, he didn't believe a word of it. He said he'd never believe it in a million years. That's a quote. Marla eyed him suspiciously and stopped massaging her neck. What do you mean? You told Robert you found me, described how I'm living, and he wouldn't believe you? Yes, that's what I'm saying. Eric said, his grin fully noticeable now. After I told him that much, Robert refused to even listen to any more. He says I clearly found the wrong woman. He's certain the person I located is not Marla Rollins. I've been retained to continue looking for her elsewhere. So Robert thinks I'm still missing? Marla asked the words slowly. Yes. Marla looked out the window, following the stretch of soft, hot sand toward the warm, turquoise blue of the water. A small laugh of disbelief escaped from her. I can see why he would find it a preposterous tale. Eric chuckled. As I've said, lying to clients is bad for business regardless of motives, but I can't help it if they refuse to accept the truth. The most I could be accused of would be a certain, shall we say, framing of the information. I chose my descriptions of you carefully, but every word was the truth, and he dismissed the possibility entirely that the woman I described could be you. He told me I had to be mistaken, along with a string of insults about how I obviously wasn't very competent at finding a missing person. He was only willing to see things through his own lens of reality, and I simply didn't try to convince him he was mistaken. Slowly, the reality of his words was finally beginning to have its full impact. You're saying you fulfilled your obligation to Robert, but since he doesn't believe the news, he effectively still doesn't know where I am? This means I don't have to go back. I'm found, but I'm still lost. She noticed the amusement on his face at his own cleverness. Then, taking in all that he had said, she added, I'm sorry he told you you were incompetent. That is his style. No doubt he's still pressuring you for results. Unless he fired you. It must have been tough to let him believe that you failed in your mission. Eric laughed out loud. Thank you for considering my feelings. But I, too, have come to the conclusion that satisfying Robert's intrusive search for you isn't at the top of my priority list, nor is it what I need to maintain my self-esteem. Marla felt a surge of gratitude, but was still hesitant to believe she could trust this or him. You still know where I am. Is it only a matter of time before you feel compelled to answer his questions in such a way that he believes you? What I know won't hurt you. I give you my word. Marla opened a window. She processed his words. Why would you do this? Why would you sidestep fulfilling your obligation for my benefit? He seemed to think about that for a moment. Let's just say the compass of my obligation changed after I met you. Once I finally met this elusive Marla Rollins and talked to her, I saw things differently. The woman I found actually wasn't the woman I was looking for. He crossed the few feet of distance between them and joined her at the window. You helped me see things from a different perspective last night. About you, and about myself, too. I'll have to deal with Robert again, and I suppose you will, too, at some point. But until then, I want to help you buy some time so you can decide what to do on your own terms. What will you do in the meantime? 
The fact is, I've already done my job. If Robert wants to keep me on doing a job already done, then so be it. I'm not going to pester you. I, I know you'd leave. You can take as much time as you need. Marla studied his face. His expression was sincere, and his eyes told her he meant every word. And yet he seemed unsure of himself. Or maybe it was her response he was uncertain about. She went into the kitchen and poured two glasses of tea and brought him one. You're going out on a limb for me, especially professionally. You don't really even know me. I know I like what I see. You're real, more real than anyone I've met in longer than I can remember. In my business, that's rare. Maybe I've been looking for someone like you for a long time. She shook her head. She had to admit there was something about him that she liked. Maybe a lot of things, but that was not for today. She wanted a lot more days ahead of her of being herself, by herself. I'm grateful for what you're doing for me, more than I can say. But I can't be found in that way right now, Eric. Not by you, not by anyone. I know, he said, and his smile was accepting. I understand. But you were worth the search, and you would be worth the wait. I'll take my chances, but I won't be watching over you. I'm leaving Cancun today. Marla looked at him in surprise for a long minute. She wanted to believe in the relief she was starting to feel about Robert, that maybe she could keep what she'd come to have and call her own. You're really going to go and leave me here and not tell anything more to Robert? How will you stall him? He won't wait too long before demanding more information. Eric laughed, apparently unconcerned. I've been in this business a long time. I'll handle him. Marla nodded and stepped away from the window. She believed him. Thank you. I don't know what else to say. I can't promise you anything. Not even that I won't run if I feel I have to. I know, but it can be your choice. You won't have to because of me. He stepped to the door and opened it. You've no idea how I admire you. With me between you and Robert, you don't have to worry. I won't let you down. Thank you. After a long pause, she finished with, You're the first person I might be willing to trust in a long, long time. That's a start. He smiled and seemed reluctant to go as he walked out. Marla swung the door closed after him and leaned against it. She couldn't explain it, but she believed he wouldn't let her down. In that respect, he was like Cancun had been to her, honest and real in a way that was unmistakable. He'd even as much as told her he had hopes of his own where she was concerned. She didn't know how she felt about that. Perhaps most astounding of all was that he said he saw her as a real person. Strange how all that she'd lost and all she'd given up had brought her to that. She thought of the falcon and how it had looked right before it flew into the blue sky. How different it was experiencing life right now. Back in the open skies once again, it would be at home, feeling the rush of air in a world that knew no cages or walls or ceilings. Even with all of its risks, freedom was lovely. Marla took a deep breath of the ocean breeze coming in the window, already feeling the lift of wings. I'm going to read a David Roper article. Odd, this twisted form should be the work of God. 
God who makes, without mistakes, the happy norm, the status quo, the usual, made me, you know, the royal palm he made, and too the stunted pine. With joy I see the lovely shapes, with pride I live in mine. No accident I am, a master's craftsman's plan. That poem by Ruth Bell Graham. I came across a tortured, twisted pine tree some years ago, high on a ridge. An ugly, misshapen thing at first glance. But I looked again and saw something deeper and better, and thought of those whose deformities are overwhelmed by rare beauty. Appearance is overrated, a mere sensation in the eyes, or brain, produced by shape, color, and motion, and conditioned a good deal by society and association. In some cultures, foot-long earlobes and distended lips are thought to be the essence of loveliness. A philosopher friend of mine once pointed out to me that objects cannot be beautiful in themselves, for they're only arrangements of colorless, shapeless, invisible atoms. We can't see them, but if we could, they would bring us no delight or satisfaction. There is a spiritual beauty, however, that is much deeper and more enduring than anything we can see with our natural eyes. It is the symmetry and splendor that God brings to his children, what scripture calls the beauty of holiness. Our present culture turns the phrase upside down, worshiping outward appearance and the holiness of beauty. I'm reminded here of the character on Saturday Night Live that always ended his monologue with the reminder, Looking good is better than being good. But that's a terrible mistake, for it leads to vanity, the desire to exceed the limits God has appointed for us, and is the means by which pride and self-preoccupation enter in, and we miss the highest good. Preoccupation with our bodies, as even pagan philosophers affirm, unavoidably leads to the diminishment of our souls. Plato, in his dialogue, Phaedo argues that we can love wisdom or we can love our bodies, but we cannot love both. We must be satisfied then with the way God has formed us. Our disabilities and deformities are not a mistake, but part of God's eternal plan. His way of dealing with them is not to remove them, but to endow them with God-like strength, dignity, and beauty and put them to his intended use as they are. McGuffey had it exactly right. Beautiful faces are they that wear the light of a pleasant spirit there. Beautiful hands are they that do deeds that are noble, good, and true. Beautiful feet are they that go swiftly to lighten another's woe. That's from McGuffey's second reader. Has aging or accident brought humiliating disfigurement? Do you consider yourself an eyesore, too ugly to be of use? No, you are God's workmanship, created as you are for good works. That's Ephesians 2.10. You are his special creation, designed from birth to manifest God's loveliness in a unique way. The craftsman's plan surpasses the material. Your countenance, though wrinkled and blemished, can be adorned with the joy of the Lord and made lovely with his kindness and compassion. Your body, be it ever so humble and lumpish, can be graceful in unselfish service and love. This is grace beyond reach of art, human ugliness hidden in divine loveliness, beauty at its very best. And of course, this is not all that will be. 
One day soon we will be made new. As George MacDonald wrote, We are as God has made us, but we are not as God will make us. We will be made over again, and everything will once for all be set right. May the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. We're in Chapter 32 of Winds of Wyoming at a Fourth of July parade. The band finished its warm-up moments before a loud boom announced the beginning of the parade. Kate looked around and noticed the Whispering Pines entry had pulled directly behind them. She watched Manuel clamber up the side of the ranch truck to plop between Bethany and Tricia on the roof of the cab. The three faced the calves and chatted like they'd been best friends since kindergarten. Wonders never ceased, thought Kate. Thank you, Lord. She grinned and blew a kiss to Fletcher, who sat behind the wheel of the truck. He returned the grin and doffed his wide hat. Clint glowered at her from the passenger seat. She turned to her microphone. Today, she'd forget about men and focus on singing and enjoying what was very likely her final day of freedom. Seeing that she was mobile enough to participate in a parade, the sheriff would likely consider her mobile enough to go to jail, and from there to prison forever. She straightened and folded her hands in her lap. Dimple had told her not to dwell on what might happen. If there ever was a day she needed that advice, it was today. The truck began to move. Wanda said, Here we go. Give it your all, guys. The band played an introduction, and Wanda, Kate, and Mike sang together. When I seen the glory of the coming of the Lord, Pastor Chuck inched the truck down Main Street. The crowd that lined both sides waved and sang and clapped with the music. Kate waved and smiled back. Despite the dread that stalked her soul, she would have a good time while she could. Mike watched his fingers move from cord to cord, as if on autopilot. He'd seen the kiss Kate blew to Clint. So that's why she was smiling from ear to ear. He wished he didn't feel so possessive when nothing was happening between him and her, especially since she stole their money. He stared beyond the onlookers, after she stole his heart. He plastered a smile on his face. This was a Fourth of July celebration. He would have a good time today no matter what was going on between those two. Gripping the railing with both hands, Ramsey pulled himself up the stairs. By the time he reached the upper level, his energy was sapped, but he had more strength than he'd expected. He followed Tara into her office. She dropped a purse into a desk drawer and turned to him. I'll take you to the cabin tonight when everyone is watching the fireworks, including the cops. But first, I want to show you someone. She reached for the rod on the blinds that covered the window overlooking the parking lot. He backstepped. No one will see you, she twisted the rod. He leaned toward the window. With a long fingernail, she bent a slat downward. See those three women sitting there? He squinted against a bright July morning. For days, the only sunlight he'd seen was filtered through the curtains that veiled the small basement window. With the big woman on the end? She nodded. The one in the middle is Laura Duncan, 
Michael's mother, I want her removed from the Whispering Pines. And the short one on this end, that's Dimple Forbes, the old woman. I could do without her, too, but she's not my main objective. Ramsay turned to Tara. What exactly? His question was smothered by her lips. All too soon, she pulled away from him, hands on his chest. Jer, I can't tell you. Her forehead furrowed. I mean, Chester, Chester Jones. I can't tell you what exactly you should do with Laura Duncan, Chester. But I can say she's a huge roadblock in the plans Daddy and I have for the Whispering Pines. And for you and me. She smiled up at him. Eyes wide, bottom lip pooched, the adoring look of a little girl asking for another piece of candy. Whatever you need, darling, I'm the man, he bent his head to kiss her again. Slipping from his grasp, she said, I knew you wouldn't disappoint me, partner. She checked her appearance in the mirror beside her desk and adjusted her hat. But don't do anything today. This town is crawling with fuzz. You'd think it was a rock festival, not a small town parade. She reached for the doorknob. Tonight, on the way to the cabin, I'll show you how to get into the Duncan's house. I can also give you Kate Nielsen's computer passwords. Amazing what one can learn through email messages. After Tara left the office, he opened the blinds on the window facing the street, cranking the slats far enough to watch the parade, but not so far he could be seen. A high school band marched by. Drums beating and clarinets squeaking, followed by a horse-drawn carriage with smiling women in feathered hats throwing candy to the crowd. Then a Model T chugged by. Children waved from the back seat. He stood and stretched. Daytime television was more interesting than this hillbilly baloney. He heard a cheer and leaned close to the window. Three girls with red cowboy hats and satin sashes that declared them to be the Carbon County Rodeo Queen and ladies-in-waiting trotted by on highly groomed horses. Behind them, an antique fire truck bleated a lame-sounding whistle. What a hick town. Pittsburgh would never have such a stupid parade. Looks more like a law enforcement summit than a parade. Kate's thoughts played a counter-melody beneath the music as a caravan crawled through Copperville, sometimes coming to a complete stop. So many deputies on duty at once in such a tiny town. Were they expecting trouble or looking for Ramsey or... She winced, keeping an eye on her. Their dark sunglasses hid their eyes and their intent. The song ended and the truck halted again. Before the next song started, someone called, Kate! Mike! She searched for the source of the throaty male voice and nearly choked. Cyrus! She waved. He said something to the young woman beside him. She nodded, made eye contact with Kate, and smiled. Kate responded with a grin and another wave. Cyrus's daughter? A moment later, Clint had worked his way through the crowd and was pumping Cyrus's hand. He hugged the woman, who seemed delighted to see him. Kate was digesting that turn of events when another voice called their names. Mike! Kate! Down here! Laura Duncan sat below them in a parking lot, sandwiched between dainty dimple and a stout woman with a stern face. Kate blew kisses, relieved Laura was still friendly toward her. Katie in! The band in the truck started again. Kate searched the crowd. Only one person called her that. Then she saw him. Coach sat next to Sally, who was seated beside Rusty from the ranch, and his wife. 
Rob and Sally's boy scampered along the sidewalk with other squealing children, racing to retrieve candy. She smiled, happy to see her friends, friends she might never see again. She couldn't expect people she barely knew to visit her in jail or in prison. A couple poems from Eugene Shea about stew. Maybe these will make you hungry. Saturday, I made a big pot of stew, put in all the good things in the house, made a larger pot than I usually do, shared it with a neighbor and her spouse. Last night, I asked her how they liked it. Oh, the stew was great, she said. I sure hope there's no connection, but this morning, found their dog was dead. This one is So Sang the Parrot. Years ago, it cost ten bucks. Now it's twenty to repair it. That's the way the money goes, so sang the parrot. Taxes come and taxes grow with a stick behind the carrot. That's the way the money goes, so sang the parrot. Pennies for the hungry child and millions for the ferret. That's the way the money goes, so sang the parrot. A penny for my feeble thoughts. I hope that you can spare it. That's the way the money goes, so sang the parrot. A chicken cooks in every pot, or so a substitute will do. That's the way the money goes. We're having parrot stew. We'll end the podcast with a quote, a little preface here. James Patterson, the best-selling author, gives millions of dollars to literacy programs, scholarships for teachers, and for classroom libraries. And he has, uh, I'm going to quote from him here. I can't underscore enough how important books and reading are to a child's development. Better readers make better people and ultimately better citizens. And tie that in with a quote from Strickland Gillian. You may have tangible wealth untold, caskets of jewels and coffers of gold. Richer than I, you can never be. I had a mother who read to me. And with that, we're out. Thanks so much for listening to our 100th podcast. Until next time, happy reading. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckylyles.com. Steve and Becky like to hear your thoughts, and they encourage authors to send stories and other short prose and poetry for them to read on the podcast. You can learn more about Becky's books by visiting beckylyles.com or by searching for her books online. Her nonfiction titles can be found under the name Becky Lyles and her fiction under Rebecca Carrie Lyles. All of her books are available in both print and ebook formats. Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom are also offered in audio format online. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.